Hi, I'm Steve Thomas. This is Cacophony. Let's dive into some great music. But first, a warning. Today's music may cause smiles, delight, and a sense of well-being. Now, I don't find every composer all that easy to talk about, or their music easy to describe. But I wanted to play Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 5, so I spoke with my friend Jason Lai. Jason's a conductor, coach, educator, TV presenter, and he joined me from his home in Singapore. I want to talk about Bach, I want to talk about Brandenburg 5. Oh, good. I've known you for quite a long time, but I don't know how you really come to be here. How did music take over your life? When did you know? I remember two things in particular. I remember watching a film, and um, don't laugh, but it's called Electric Dreams from the 1980s, and it had a cellist in it. I haven't seen it. Oh, we'll do. It's about an architect, and his computer actually falls in love with his girlfriend, who's a cello player. And the cellist, she was playing Bach, and somehow the, the computer picks up on this piece and starts duetting with her. Um, and also, you remember Fame, this TV series, and there was a cellist on that as well. So I remember all these things together, and so I was just very intrigued by the cello. And so I just went into school and asked if I could start the cello. And luckily, luckily, someone decided to give up, and I took over. Ace. Yeah, and and that's how it all began. Yeah, it consumed me. I had this passionate affair with music. I was just like a sponge. I just knew at that time. It was important to me, but I didn't know it would be a profession. But I knew it was very important to me. Ace, how old were you? Ten. You knew it was important to you. <sighs> All I can say, Steve, is that it spoke to the soul somehow. Something within me shifted when I started connecting with music, and it became, and it still is, my companion in life. It still comforts me. It enrages me. It startles me. All these things. And then you ended up as a conductor. I did. I turned to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Bach that got you, and this is Johann Sebastian Bach, not any of his descendants or relatives. I do like his descendants, but J.S. is something else. He's just on a different level, right? Even in 2020, you can say, "Wow, this guy!" I tell you, don't know how he did it. What's he doing that speaks to Jason Lai and millions of other people? For me, getting it on an intellectual level is the first stage. If you just accept the fact that this guy could put notes together, this guy, you give him a theme, and he comes out with a whole series of pieces based on it in the musical offering. And the king who gave him this theme to elaborate on and improvise on just gave him this this very ordinary theme, and he tran he transported that into many, many, many different things. He has this mind to do that, so that's the first thing. But in his invention, there is such deep feeling and soulfulness in the way he puts the notes together. In that, someone else trying to put the notes together in the same harmony couldn't do it in the way he did. Somehow, he's able to touch you deeply inside. I mean, you just look at the set of Brandenburg concertos for a start. And for me, it's like your dream candy shop because there's unbelievable delights in every direction you look at. Every one of those six concertos, which which he wrote for the Margrave of Brandenburg, hence the name Brandenburg Concertos, and each of those have a very distinctive quality about them and a distinctive color texture. 
Uh, number five has this extraordinary combination of harpsichord, violin, and, and flute, which actually, well, may, actually, may, may, it may not seem extraordinary, but what he does is he turns it into a kind of harpsichord concerto, the first of its kind. One of the things that I've just been struck by knowing that we were going to be talking about them is how cutting edge they are. He publishes these, or he sends them to the Margrave of Brandenburg in 1721. He may have written them before, I think cobbled them together a little bit sort of recycled a few things i think so yeah yeah the first concerto has got a couple of horns in it which are new they're not used to being indoors in an orchestra the you know the flute that we recognize as a flute even that was new so there's all this newness going on let's play with all these new instruments i understand that a double manual harpsichord had just arrived where he was a harpsichord with two keyboards that enables you to play it's basically got more than one set of strings. Well, you can have different colours. So you, you can have a different sound on the upper keyboard and a different sound on the lower keyboard, which creates an extraordinary opportunity to, to be creative, which he was. And people accuse him of being conservative, and I don't really understand that. It may be the way he wrote things, because he was, he was very much uh, into counterpoint. The easiest way to explain it is that, so he writes melodies to, that come together, but independently on their own, they would sound wonderful. But then he puts them together with other wonderful sounding melodies, and it sounds even more wonderful. And there's a busyness often in all those melodies, and they just somehow fit so well together. And maybe that's a very old way of thinking. I mean, by the time he died, 1750, things were moving on, and he was considered very stuck in his way. But, oh my word... The, the things that he'd done in his lifetime were astounding. If we look at the fifth concerto, if you just look at the first few bars or the first bar itself, it's just basically a D major triad, but with repeated notes. Dugger, 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 dugger. And from that, he has a spinning out of ideas. You're carried away by your senses. It's the rhythm of life. It's the rhythm of vitality, and it connects me back to myself. It's not a head thing. It's not an intellectual thing for me. The way he writes the rhythm, the way he puts the harmonies together just speaks to people. And I think that's where his genius lies, whether it's joy, whether it's sadness, whether it's boundless energy, you feel it straight away. So in this concerto, he's got his three soloists, his violinist, his flautist, and his harpsichordist. And there's a small band we're going to do the Netherlands Bark Society video. Yeah, why not? They're excellent. So it's quite interesting. This concert was in the Rijksmuseum, the big gallery in Amsterdam. And it's there because the museum had just been given a harpsichord that was made in 1640. Amazing. And still around. Still around. Still playable. And they wanted to have a gig to celebrate the arrival of this instrument in the museum. And it's really cool because... Behind them, there's a very famous Rembrandt painting uh, called The Night Watch, I think it is. But behind the string players in the orchestra, there's a less famous painting, The Sampling Officials of the Amsterdam Drapers Guild. <laughs> catchy, catchy title. And it's like they're all watching. It makes them a fantastic audience. So that's the version that we're going to link to the podcast. But Shunsuke Sato, who's the violin soloist, he was talking about how it starts off quite conventionally with the three solo instruments in the orchestra. And then he says it's gradually like the harpsichord player pushes the others out. It balloons its role until it takes over. And then it has this really extraordinary moment. Tell us about that. 
he's quite right. As you listen to the piece, the harpsichordist suddenly goes a little bit more crazy in terms of rhythm and scales. And suddenly they're all over the place and it kind of takes over and it becomes more and more highly charged, just full of electricity until the harpsichord suddenly has a moment. It's like in jazz where you kind of spotlight someone. It's actually all written out. I suspect that Bart probably would have improvised it at first and then wrote it down later. And it's extraordinary because it doesn't sound written out. Yeah. It's such a torrent of stuff. Yeah. It's a wonderful display of a virtuosic ability. The other two soloists and the rest of the orchestra sit back and it's quite a lengthy bit for the harpsichord. And eventually, after all the scales, it kind of dies down and it starts harking back to the music of the opening. And so it's a wonderful way that Bach brings us on this journey of breathtaking virtuosity, as if you're going further and further away from reality in a way. The harpsichord takes over, but it's never happened before. And then it kind of gradually calms down and goes back to the music at the beginning. And then suddenly everyone's back in again and it's the play out. It's a genius moment and it's an incredible moment for music, for the idea that the harpsichordist could be a soloist. Because normally they sit at the back and they fill in the gaps in the chords. Or usually they sit at the front directing the band. But this is like five, ten steps way beyond that. So it's a lot. It's a huge step for mankind. Hmm. It's a moon landing. (laughs) Yeah. And from there we end up with piano concertos. Exactly. And then in the second moment he ditches the orchestra entirely. Yeah. It's a very intimate affair with just the soloists, which I think is lovely. He does this in most of the slogans. He has a smaller group, the, the soloist concertino group. It's really lovely because, it, again, it's like a different flavor, a different sense. Like when you go for a great meal, and this is exactly what he's doing in this. He writes a fetuoso on, on the score, which, which means with feeling. It really feels very soulful. He's able to touch you right right in your heart and in a very very short amount of time he draws you into his world his world of fantasy his world of feeling and so it's very moving and then the final movement the final dish of the meal is a bit of a country stomp i would call it more of a dance but (laughs) stomp yeah a lot of i noticed that in a lot of bark last movements there is a certain lightness there's a certain charm a certain dance a light footedness and it's a fugue you have this kind of uh, very very jaunty fugal statement is it yeah uh, it must be a good one because i haven't even noticed it's in fugato style it's not strictly a fugue a fugue is when you have a theme um that's written at a certain pitch in a key And then another voice comes in that plays the same theme, but in a kind of contrasting key that's related. And the skill is how to get from your initial key with this beautiful theme into this next key. And then the third voice goes back to the original key and the fourth voice goes back to the contrasting key. So this is this is constant exchange of direction. And the skill is to get your listener and get the performer feeling into this and not really knowing that it's an intellectual exercise of the mind. This is where Bach scores highly because his fugues don't leave you feeling as if you're sensing erudition of any sort. It's just charm, beauty. 
And this is what Bach does in his fifth concerto. He lightens the atmosphere and it introduces this wonderfully jaunty theme, which has a fugato texture about it. So you have the theme, I believe it's on, um, is it the flute or the violin that comes first? I forget. It's the violin. Right. And then you have it on the flute and then the cello or the bass line comes with it and the harpsichord comes in with it and it gathers momentum. And it, again, it's this wonderful simplicity that gathers this spinning out of joy and dance. I think he particularly enjoyed composing dances. Dances were very popular at the time, and this is definitely kind of a jig, in a way, a jig. I heard the conductor Roger Norrington once point out that essentially all music is dance music. I would agree with him. There's a lovely moment towards the end of the concerto, towards the end of this movement, where mm. the music kind of feels like it's coming to an end, and then he hits you with one last play out of the theme. Certainly in the video, the chord is really emphatic. It's one of those magic moments. You really get that sense of live performance, and you think they've really nailed that. You can see the violinist really, really smiling at how brilliant and how much fun it is. Might be where my stomp came from. I think that's the dance music. There you go. It got your foot tapping and it got your soul dancing and gave you a sense of aliveness. As you say, that oomph and to see performers performing it with smiles and, and with a sense of rhythmic joy and vitality is, I think, what it's all about. Fab. Thank you, Jason. That was fun. I think we should put it on. Nice. Let's hear it. Yeah. So click on the links in the show notes. Have a listen. And then give us a comment, a like, share and subscribe to the podcast. Come back for more next time. Thanks for listening.